a very few, a few very quick words about myself. I'm not an academic, either by training or inclination. I'm a former civil servant, and I served in Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs for many years before entering the private sector and working at IBM. Coming to MEI is almost full circle for me, as I was part of the team that set up the Middle East Directorate in MFA all those years ago and worked on the establishment of this institute. While I was writing my opening statement, I browsed a few websites just to see what common perceptions and word associations came up about the Middle East. More often than not, the association was negative. People associated the Middle East with crisis, terrorism, beheadings, instability, intolerance, and restrictions for minorities and women. In 2004, I was part of then Prime Minister Go Chok Tong's delegation to Iran. There were only two women in the delegation at the time, one from MTI and one from MFA. I'd had to go up in advance with the protocol and PMO team. And before that, I'd been told over and over again that I had to wear a shapeless overcoat and keep my head covered at all times. Needless to say, I ignored the instruction about the shapeless overcoat, but I did carry the headscarf in my hand luggage. We arrived in Tehran and it surprised me. I felt as if I had entered an old world Southern European city. There was an air of vibrancy and breeziness. The women were beautiful. Their headscarves barely covered their heads. Their dress was conservative, but hardly shapeless. And they all wore Jackie O style sunglasses. It was an eye-opening experience and threw many misconceptions out the window. Having said that, the Middle East is conservative and there are pockets of instability across the region. But it is also far more than just the crises we read of every day or the images of somber dress we associate with the Middle East. No one tells you that the somber dress is often topped by exquisitely made up and rather lovely faces. There is stability in much of the region, whether you consider Saudi Arabia, Iran or Turkey. Economically, the Gulf in particular has been very successful. The region has a young, educated and internet savvy population. And the region is changing in response to how the world is changing. Whether or not the more conservative elements within society, their societies wanted to. There are knock-on effects. Greater awareness of climate change and the impact it will have on one of the most arid regions in the world. The realization that they must diversify economies away from an over-reliance on oil and gas. A desire among young people in the region for more job opportunities and greater openness that would allow them to voice their opinions, dress as they like, and generally live lives without constraints. Let me start now with what the Middle East is. Geographically, we really ought to refer to it as West Asia, as the region includes not just the Arab states, but non-Arab states like Iran and Turkey. At MEI, we consider this region in two tiers, a Northern tier and a Southern tier. In the northern tier, we include Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and North Africa. Iran and Turkey are all civilizations, Muslim, but not Arab. 
Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon are struggling states. Jordan is the one monarchy in this tier. And then there is Israel, which for the most part is stable and economically successful. And yet Israel is undergoing remarkable social changes with chasms opening between secular and ultra-Orthodox Israelis. In the Southern tier, we speak primarily of the Gulf states. These have been successful and for the most part stable. The exception is Yemen. But the Gulf states are also undergoing changes. The most significant, in my view, being Saudi Arabia. The economic diversification that many of the Gulf states seek cannot come without some sort of social transformation and infrastructural changes. Flux is to be expected. My explanation of these tiers may seem a little simplistic, but this approach has given us better insights into how the Middle East is evolving and the challenges countries face domestically and regionally. Singapore can't ignore the Middle East, nor should we. In a world that is so connected, we in Southeast Asia are impacted by the Middle East and in turn have an impact on them. And we should recognize that the Middle East is both different and yet in some ways similar to us in Southeast Asia. Family, faith, and a conservative value system make both parts of, our, of the world, both our parts of the world quite similar. Across multi-ethnic and multi-religious Southeast Asia, the ties with the Middle East are old. Travelers from the Hadramaut in, in Yemen made the long journey across the Indian Ocean centuries ago, bringing with them religion, trade, culture, and learning. Along the way, they married local women and raised families with them. If you want a sense of what that must have been like, one of my favorite books is Travels with a Tangerine by Tim McIntosh Smith, where he replicated the travels of Ibn Battuta a Moroccan scholar and explorer who traveled extensively in the 14th century and is said to have clocked more kilometers than either Admiral Zengha or Marco Polo. Here in Singapore, Arab Street is not called Arab Street for no reason. And the wonderful network of roads and little backways bear names like Muscat Street, Baghdad Street, Bussorah Street, to name a few. Several old families in Singapore trace their roots back to the Hadramaut. And yet for a long time, our interest in the Middle East was limited and focused only on a few countries. Egypt, because they had been one of the first to recognize Singapore's independence and because they were in the 1960s, one of the leading lights in the non-aligned movement and as a fledgling state, we needed all the support that we could muster. Saudi Arabia, primarily Jeddah, because of the Hajj and the Singapore Muslims who make the annual pilgrimage. Israel, which helped us to build our defenses in the early days of our independence and with whom we continue to share close ties. Beyond defense, we have worked together with Israel in research and development and in startups, with both countries quickly becoming known as startup giants. Jump forward to today, and Singapore is represented in many countries in the Gulf, 
and other parts of the Middle East. Then Prime Minister Go Chok Tong started the process in the early 2000s of encouraging interest in and engagement with countries in the Middle East. Since then, ties have continued to grow and develop at the ground level. What has changed? For one, Singaporeans now know more about the Middle East and they are much more adventurous. You will find Singaporeans working in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and Doha, and studying in Cairo, Jeddah, and Tel Aviv. Singaporeans are also more aware of developments in the Middle East, whether it is the plight of the Palestinians, Syrians, or Iraqis, or the assertiveness of Turkey and Iran. And they have opinions. Multi-religious Singapore has a Muslim community who make the annual pilgrimage to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia and stay on to visit other parts of the region if they can. Moreover, as the custodian of the holy places, Saudi Arabia is influential in how many view their faith and the practice of their faith. Singapore businesses continue to view the Gulf with interest and to look for opportunities to pitch a tent and establish lasting business partnerships. For their part, Middle East countries look to Singapore with interest. They have learned from our successes, use their resources well, and are keen competitors. Hamad International Airport in Doha is now ranked the number one airport in the world, having toppled Changi Airport's eight-year run as the world's number one. The Changi Airport Group will have taken note, and you can bet there will be a comeback from Singapore. Singapore Airlines now watches Qatar Airways and Emirates closely. Today, their names frequently come up together with SIAs as the best airlines in the world. The Gulf states are also focused on diversifying their economies away from an over-reliance on oil and gas. Their sovereign wealth funds have quietly set up a presence in Singapore as they explore investment opportunities. Played well, this diversification effort and the Gulf's renewed focus on our region offers opportunities not just for them, but also for Singapore and Southeast Asia. This is not to say that the region is an easy one either to understand or navigate. Long an arena of geopolitical jostling, the region has seen the British and Americans compete when oil was first discovered. The former USSR and America compete for influence during the Cold War. And today, a potent mix of the US seeking to rebalance its role in the region, a more confident and assertive China seeking to make inroads in the Middle East, and a very visible Russian presence. From Turkey and Iran in the Northern Tier to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar in the Southern Tier, the need and the timeline for necessary change is picking up pace. Having put their eggs in one basket for so long, they recognize the need for greater self-reliance and for a hedging of bets. All this is very visible, whether it was the signing of the Abraham Accords a high-profile six-country visit to the Middle East by China's foreign minister Wang Yi, 
or the rolling out of ambitious vision plans. China's presence in the Middle East has been written about extensively by many China observers. And so I won't say too much beyond it being something worth watching closely. FM Wang's visit to Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, the UAE, Oman, and Bahrain caught my eye in March this year. While Chinese interest in the Middle East is driven largely by economic opportunities, new sources, as well as new markets, the choice of countries visited intrigued me and seemed directed more at the US as a message than anything else. That said, China has made some huge strides economically, especially in the Gulf. And they could well become a tough competitor for Singapore business interests. So should we in Singapore care about developments in the Middle East? Yes. We don't understand the Middle East as well as we think we do. But as Mr. Gotok Tong observed in a 2007 interview prior to his second visit to Iran, we should engage one another, explore opportunities for cooperation, and listen to each other's views. I could talk for a very long time about the Middle East as so much has happened, even through the ongoing COVID situation. And I have probably taken a very simple perspective on the region. But let me end here, make a pitch for our ME 101 series, and then open the floor to questions. As you know, today's session is a kickoff to our series, which will run to the end of November. There are 14 sessions in all, and we have tried to cover as many subjects as we could within this series. In September, our focus is on geopolitical competition in the Middle East, and our five sessions consider the dynamics within the region, as well as the role of external parties with vested interests. In October, we consider the politics of economic reform, as well as the challenges beyond economics. We wanted to look beyond oil and gas, address the hoary issue of climate change, and consider the roles of women and youth in the Middle East. Demographically, the Middle East has one of the youngest populations, and women are an untapped resource in a region where there has been a long reliance on overseas talent and skills. Finally, in November, we look at religion and political Islam in the Middle East, the role of social media, and we address Central Asia. A seemingly mixed bag of topics, but religion for one cannot be ignored when we talk of the Middle East. The three oldest religions were formed in this region. And it would be foolish of me to talk of a connected world and an internet savvy youth population without us also addressing the impact of social media in what remains a very conservative society. I hope you will therefore stay the course and attend as many of these sessions as you can. The topics are as interesting as they are varied. Okay, let's take some questions. Um, you, you have to direct your questions to the chat, to the MEI events team, uh, and then they will route those to me. So. Um, you know, uh, we've got quite a lot of time. I didn't want to say too much because I really wanted to give more time to questions. Uh, think a little bit about what you want to ask um, and then put your questions in the chat box. But I do have a couple of questions. 
which I, I'm going to kick off with. Um, there was a question that talked about the Gulf and I, I'll read it out to you all and then I'll tell you what my response is. You have stressed quite a bit about the Gulf in your lecture, including competition. But how can Singapore compete against countries awash in petrodollars? You mentioned Hamad Airport. Qatar is tiny too, but hosts world-class museums, will stage the World Cup next year, among other things. So you talk about competing with countries that are washed in petrodollars. Uh, let me just quick, take a quick drink of water first. I don't think we have anything to fear in terms of competition from the Gulf. Um, I think competition is, ne is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think it is a good thing. Um, as a Singaporean, my pride is hurt that Hamad International Airport has managed to knock us off um, the number one position, uh, you know, Changi Airport from the number one position when we've had eight years where we've held that number one position. Um, uh, but I can tell you that um, we will come back and, uh, you know, we will compete to get back that number one position. Uh, I don't think you necessarily need to have deep pockets to, to be competitive and to adapt. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the Gulf states, uh, yes, they are awash in petrodollars. And yes, they do use a lot of the money that uh, they have earned that revenue uh, in order to develop their country. But I'd also say that they recognize that they need to diversify away from oil and gas. The pockets are deep, but they're not infinite. Um, I would also say that um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, what we, how we can compete against them, um, you know, Singapore started with very little, if not nothing. Uh, we've worked very, very hard to get to where we are. We had help along the way from, from organizations like the UN Development Program, for, to whom we will always be appreciative of what they did for us to help us get our start. Uh, you know, I remember that uh, the late Lee Kuan Yew, whenever he went to the Netherlands, would always make sure that he visited uh, Dr. Albert Winsemius, who was from the UNDP and really played a, a very crucial role in helping us uh, in terms of our development. You know, uh, grit has got us to where we are, uh, but we also have one very valuable resource, which is our human our human resource. Uh, you know, we. You know, we, we have set up infrastructures that are stable, transparent, uh, and we have an educated English speaking workforce. I don't think that um, uh, money alone is going to ensure that uh, uh, our that we get ahead of, of the Gulf states. You know, they have those resources in terms of the finance, the petrodollars, but the truth is that they also recognize that they now need to build the, the skill sets within their population, not simply just import the talent. Uh, and that's going to be a long road for them, you know. Okay, there's another question. There's a question about Egypt. You mentioned we had a start there, but there's little mention of it in media, for instance. And when there is, it is usually all bad news. Is Egypt still relevant to Singapore? Um, actually, it is. Uh, I think here in Singapore, you know, when I was in the foreign ministry, you know, we recognize that Egypt had its share of problems. But 
they were one of the first countries to recognize our independence. Uh, and in the 1960s, that, that counted for everything. Uh, so, you know, some of the ties are, are somewhat sentimental. Uh, I think that's how we also tend to view the Commonwealth. Uh, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of sentimentality uh, towards it. Uh, and that is an appreciation. I think you have to appreciate these countries, no matter what they are going through now, or that for what they did for us uh, when we were starting out uh, at separation and when we became an independent state. Yeah. Um, is Egypt still relevant to us? It is. Um, Al-Azhar University. Al-Azhar University in Cairo is the oldest um, uh, center of learning uh, for religious scholars. And many Singaporeans do go there uh, to study. And um, I think that, that makes them important to us and relevant. Um, and uh, I don't think that it's going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Okay, I've got another question. I've got a question from Edwina, Edwina Shadik. Are there any reasons why Singapore should pay attention to Central Asia? Uh, yes, <laughs> there, there actually are reasons for it. While it doesn't really, it's not technically uh, the Middle East, which is, you know, an artificial term. Um, I think you need to, we look at Central Asia, and this is something that has been growing for us in the Middle East. We've had these long debates and discussions. Should we be looking at the Central Asia uh, Central Asian republics, are they relevant to us? Because they're really not West Asia, they're Central Asia. But um, they are an arena where you can see uh, Turkey and Iran uh, both seeking to uh, influence. Uh, the Russians have never really left that part of the, of the world, although most of the Central Asian republics use them, uh, treat them with some suspicion. Um, there's also a lot of potential in the Central Asian republics. I think you cannot ignore them if you are to look at, uh, at them uh, in terms of uh, the economics uh, and the, the international economy. They are keen to be plugged in. Some have really, uh, you know, Kazakhstan is the most obvious example that comes to mind, but they have actually done um, a great deal uh, in terms of their development, uh, you know, they, 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 there were frequent visits uh, by the Kazakh leadership to Singapore. They remain very fond of Singapore and uh, we have helped them quite a bit through our Singapore Corporation program, um, you know. Um, and um, uh, I think uh, you can't ignore that. And, I, and really, when I talk about the Central Asian Republics, the reason why I say we ought to look at them is really because for me, I, I would like to know what Turkey and Iran are doing there and what this means for us um, directly or indirectly. You know, we do engage with Central, the Central Asian Republics. I think our ministries or the government here does see a great deal of potential. There are quite a number of Singapore businesses in the Central Asian Republics as well. You know, I talked about Singaporeans being adventurous and you find them all over the Middle East. But you know what? You find them all over the Central Asian Republics. We've got really intrepid people. They learn to speak Russian and then they live in places like Kazakhstan for five years, six years. You know, it's amazing, uh, you know, um, where you find Singaporeans, you know. So sometimes when people say, oh, you know, Singaporeans, we're all strawberries and we're too, you know, we're like fat cats. We're just too self, self uh, we're too content. We're not motivated. 
I don't agree. I actually think that, especially among younger Singaporeans, there's a greater sense of adventure and a recognition that there's a big wide world out there. Yeah, I hope that answers your question, Adina. Okay, let me see. It's a question from Jeffrey Angus. How will the role of Islam evolve as the region attempts to modernize? Good question. I, if you ask me, I look at it and, and I think one of the things you see is that I talked about the fact that there's a recognition that um, the countries in the Middle East, and you see this particularly in the Gulf. Now, let me just talk about Saudi Arabia. I think they're probably the, the best example. Uh, Saudi Arabia recognizes it must diversify away from oil and gas. Okay. But to diversify, it therefore needs to look at its, at its infrastructure and it needs to look at its workforce, right? Um, and, in, and thus it needs to so-called modernize. Now in looking at a workforce, you must look at a workforce that encompasses both males and females, right? When you do that, you come up against a very conservative part of the population. It's not simply the, the clergy, you know, or the religious. Um, I think older Saudis are also very conservative. Uh, you know, I recall a couple of years ago, at one of our conferences, we had a speaker from Saudi Arabia. You know, he was a very interesting man. He's, uh, you know, uh, but he shocked me because he openly said, he said, you know, women don't want to drive in Saudi Arabia. They don't support the move to drive in Saudi Arabia. And I thought, how is this possible? You know, and then I, and then I realized that, you know, what he was talking about, he, was, he didn't articulate it so clearly, but what he was talking about was that it was the traditional and conservative against those who believe that there is a need to be a part of the 21st century, you know. Um, and so Islam, I think, has got to also evolve, you know, uh, accordingly. Now, you know, religions are not static, they are dynamic. Uh, Islam, I think, more than, than, most, than most religions. Uh, you know, I, I'm Catholic and, uh, you know, we, we, we have a head of the church, which is the Pope, who is in, in, in the Vatican in Italy, in Rome. And everything is rather structured uh, and it's very clearly defined. Um, you know, uh, whereas with Islam, there, is, there's, there has always been, a, you know, a little bit more acceptance, but there's also been very conservative elements, you know, and I think that as countries in the Middle East uh, start to push against the, the, the sort of traditional tribal way of doing things and, and start to try to move their countries, the, their societies and their economies, uh, uh, you know, more into the 21st century, less, more diversified, less, uh, less dependent on just one resource or another, and therefore, you know, held hostage to the, to the for market forces. I think you will see that there will be these tensions and there will be this jostling. What I hope is that it doesn't lead to um, uh, some of the terrible disruptions that we have seen in, in some of the other some of the other states um, across the, the Middle East. Okay. Uh, sorry, I missed one question, so I'm going to have to come back. Okay, because. Uh, Okay, so I've got backup support and they're just telling me I missed out a question. Um, uh, Muhammad Rashid, you asked, will PM Lee's offer to the US for the use of the RSAF's MRTT aircraft for the uh, Afghanistan evacuation expose Singapore to more terror threats? Probably. 
um, we have always been very aware um, of the threat of terrorism. Uh, we are an open economy. We are an open country. Right now, you can't travel. Everything is closed. There's a lot of restrictions. And that's only because of COVID-19. Uh, if you think back to 2019, uh, you, you remember that we were very, very open um, and that, uh, you know, people came and went. Uh, and that always brings with it certain risks. One of the things that we look at at the Institute is, is, the, is how ideas flow. Uh, you know, um, how ideas flow. I don't want to talk about terrorism because that really is, is something that uh, the Rajaratnam School looks at more closely, but, you know, that is a reality. I think that the majority um, uh, uh, of, of, of individuals who have some religious belief, and I talk about this across the faiths, right, are moderate and they want to live peacefully you will always get the extreme elements and it, you see this across a lot of the religions. Um, um, I think the offer uh, to the Americans uh, to help out in Afghanistan, yes, there will be those who will not agree with what we have done, who believe that basically we are, we are supporting uh, the great Satan, uh, you know, uh, but let's be realistic about Singapore. We're a small country. Uh, we do live in a rather we, we live in a uh, in a in a region that where it can be rather things get rather testy and that's putting it politely. Um, we as a small country also have a very uh, fine balancing act that we have to that we have to manage. Um, you know the offer was made I think for humanitarian reasons. Um, does it open us to risks? Yes. Uh, I think these are the kinds of risks that our internal security people have been very aware of and are very concerned about. So you do know that I think a couple of weeks ago, there was an article that, you know, um, you know our intelligence agencies did say that uh, they're worried about uh, the US withdrawal and the speed at which the Taliban was taking back Afghanistan uh, meant that there was going to, there was always going to be that, uh, they'd have to be more alert and more aware of the risk in terms of, of, of terrorism uh, and possible terrorist attacks here. I hope it never happens in Singapore. I really don't want to see something like that happen. But you know we're small, we're open, um, and we can be quite exposed. And sometimes you just can't prepare for everything. Yeah? I hope that answers your question, uh, Rashid. OK, wait, uh, let me see. Uh, is there a difference between the use of Arab Gulf, Persian Gulf, and the Middle East, both in how Singapore sees the region and, and how they view themselves? This question came from Celine Lowe. Um, the Middle East, the term Middle East is, a, it is a, I think it is a British, uh, British military term. Uh, like how they described us as the Far East. They have the Far East, the Near East, the Middle East. Um, uh, it, it, is a, it is a way that they define um, uh, sort of uh, mil uh, zones uh, militarily. Um, um, and I don't think, I don't find it an accurate explanation. 
the Persian Gulf, uh, you know, is geographical. Uh, I rarely use the, the term Arab Gulf, so I, I can't really explain that to you. But what I can tell you is that uh, when we when when we had with a couple of our researchers sit down and talk about this, and they they said to me, you know, you can't really call the Middle East the Middle East because it's not an accurate representation. Uh, which is why we use the definitions of northern tier and southern tier. Um, in the northern tier, it's really the countries that were traditionally known as the Levant, which is the Fertile Crescent, and and it's because of the, the those lands are very fertile. They were always the they they had they were they were not arid. They had water, uh, you know. Uh, they had uh, good soil. You know, the planting of crops, etc., was easy in that part of the world, that that region, that particular region of of West Asia. Um, uh, so uh, I I don't really like using Persian Gulf and Arab Gulf, um, and they are sometimes uh, disputed or contested terms. Uh, you know, um, we here in the Middle East Institute we tried to pick something that was more neutral. So we picked not we looked at Northern Tier, Southern Tier. It gives us an easier way to analyze it. It also allows us to bring in. Um, uh, countries like Turkey and Iran, who were never considered part of the Middle East, which really was used to define all the Arab states, you know, and you know that neither Iran nor neither Iran nor Turkey are, are Arab, you know, uh, you know, and they are also very old civilizations. Turkey was the Ottoman Empire, and uh, the Iran Iranians were the, the Persian civilization. And so, uh, you know, using Northern and Southern tier allows us to better define that. Uh, and precisely, you know, you brought up all these different terms. It's very confusing. How do you decide which is the most accurate term to use? There isn't. Even using Northern tier, Southern tier, sometimes it can be a little bit clunky because you then have to explain who are the countries that fall within Northern, who are the ones that fall within Southern. We use very geographical sort of divisions, you know. But when you talk about Southern tier, you really are looking at the countries that are part of the Gulf. They're called the Gulf states because they are centered around the, the Gulf. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. Uh, okay. Um, oh, I've just been reminded that, you know, I talked about uh, Afghanistan in response to you, Rasid, uh, about the humanitarian, about the, that it was humanitarian. Um, you know, I've just been reminded that PM did mention that this, this whole issue was also a priority for the whole world and for Singapore it was really no exception It is one of the reasons why that, that the offer was made, you know. Um, okay, Carl Sum, you have asked, when MFA decided to set up the MED, was there any particular reason or event or was it just the emerging importance of the region to Singapore? It's just lucky that I was one of the MFA officers who was around at the time when we were actually doing some reorganizing of the of the foreign ministry. Uh, so let me let me tell you what I can within a small uh, within a small uh, sort of uh, cluster of. Uh, uh, I mean, try and, I'll try and answer your question. Sorry, does someone just send me a message via the chat directly to me? Uh, can you please send it to the MEI event team because they are they're putting the questions in the queue. Yeah, so to be fair to everyone, I would like to actually try to answer the questions as they come through the queue. I think it's someone from Tamasek Pauli. Yeah. Uh, okay, Carl, let me answer your question. Was there a specific event? No, there was actually, 
uh, and this was during the time when uh, uh, Peter Ho was the permanent secretary of the ministry. He was also the head of the civil service. And I think at that point, he recognized that the old way that we had looked at our, our directorates as um, political policy, polit political policy, political analysis, it's called PPA, okay? Um, and I can't remember what it, what it is now. It's been so long since I left the ministry. But these were basically the policy and uh, political directorates. They were called one, two, three, and four, I think. And um, the different regions sort of got lumped together. I think he felt, felt that that wasn't actually ideal. So for example, the Middle East was actually part of what was then called D4, Directorate 4. And it was put together with Latin America, uh, South Asia, uh, and Africa. Uh, it doesn't work, it's very clunky. And I think at that point when the decision was made to do some of the restructuring, it also came at a point where uh, Mr. Gochok Tong was also looking at the Middle East in a more serious way. And he was basically saying, um, you know, we need to pay attention to them. Uh, you know, uh, our chairman likes to joke that um, while we didn't really pay that much attention to the Middle East, they paid a lot of attention to us. And then we began to realize that they were paying attention to us, which is true. I mean, Dubai took many lessons from us, adapted it, um, picked up best practices from everywhere else, just as we had done when we built Changi Airport, for example, and created what it created. And that's why Dubai is where it is today. You know what I mean? They took a leaf from our, for, from our book and, and ran with it, and they ran with it very successfully. So I think at the time when uh, the Middle East Directorate was set up, it was part of a, a larger effort to actually restructure the directorates, looking at the regions and allowing for more focus uh, in each of these regions because we recognized that there was potential and we couldn't just always uh, focus on uh, North America and Europe, Southeast Asia and North Asia. There was Africa, there was Latin America, there was the Middle East and there was South Asia. And we did need to pay attention to all of these. And so the, the, the decision to create the Middle East Directorate was part of that broader strategy, um, you know, uh, and uh, tying into to the observation that Mr. Goh had made that, you know, the Middle East seemed to be paying a lot more attention to us. Um, we weren't doing enough to pay attention to them. Uh, but he made this comment about Latin America as well, uh, you know, and, uh, and uh, so there was a restructuring. I think it was a much more rational approach. Um, it allowed us to pay a lot more attention to each of these different regions. Um, and it allowed us also to work across agencies more effectively, because if you look at the trade ministry and its uh, statutory boards, um, and if uh, you you will see that they they were much more geographical than we were originally, uh, in part because the ministry at that time was very small. It, it's a it's a larger ministry now. It's still one of the smallest ministries around, but it is larger than it used to be because um, I think there was a recognition that you 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 needed to give a little bit more focus to more regions, not just look at the few. I mean, in the early days, necessity meant that we looked we focused only on a few. But I think. Um, as we found our feet in the world and as we grew in confidence and became much more uh, successful, it was good for us to actually look at where we could expand the markets that we could go into, the relationships that we could develop. You know, we have relationships in many of these countries in the United Nations, but you know, the UN is, is a rather artificial sort of construct. You know, what happens in the UN happens in the UN, doesn't necessarily 
translate into bilateral actions. And so you, you really need to take a two-pronged approach. That, that's my sort of long circuitous answer to your question, Carl. Okay. Siu Boon, uh, you asked this question, how wide and deep are the linkages, economic, political, and security between Singapore and the Middle East in general, and who? Saudi in the Middle East, who in the Middle East is driving the development and agenda in the region? How wide and deep are our linkages? It really depends on the country. Um, we really can do a lot more. Um, but it also depends on, on uh, how engaged the countries themselves want to be. Uh, let me address the second question first before I go back to the first one. You asked who is driving uh, the development and agenda in the region. Um, there has been a, a, a partnership between, uh, between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, in part because both, uh, you know, the, 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 the two, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia and um, uh, the MBZ in the UAE uh, have uh, had a lot of uh, common ground. There was, they shared a lot of common ground in terms of the concerns that they had and the interests that they shared. Um, and in many ways, they have, they have set quite a bit of the agenda um, in that when they came up with their vision plans and they talked about diversifying and about um, uh, modernizing or transforming, uh, they were doing this, one, because it was in their national interest to do it. Two, because I think both countries, both, both countries recognized that there was a need for them to, there was a need for them to, uh, really bring their countries into the 21st century. Now, you know, the UAE is really, uh, is really a, a union of uh, smaller emirates. Uh, collectively, they, they are more effective than if they were to work individually. But the wealthiest of the emirates are Dubai and Abu Dhabi. And Abu Dhabi is where the capital is. So a lot of, of what is being done in the UAE is being driven by Abu Dhabi. Uh, and in Saudi Arabia, it is, of course, the, the House of Al-Saud. It is the rulers themselves and the crown prince. Um, in making the changes that they do, I think they bring the smaller countries along with them. Now, many of the smaller states, especially if you look at Bahrain, etc., they, they, they are rather dependent, for example, on, on Saudi Arabia. So uh, they, get, they get brought along in, in, that, in those changes. But the desire to transform uh, and to actually modernize and be competitive on different levels um, is also competition among the Gulf states, okay? Um, you know, next week, you, you, uh, we will look at the, we, are we looking at the Gulf? I think we're looking at the Gulf. Um, uh, but Clemens Che, who's one of our researchers, will probably be able to answer some of these questions better for you. I, I would say that um, the fact that Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, decided that they were going to 
came up with their vision plans and have actually worked out strategies and are, and are starting to, to enter into the planning and execute and you know, planning stages and hopefully into the execution of, of their visions has actually spurred everybody else. Uh, having the petrodollars has also been helpful, okay? So that's why you also see Qatar. Qatar is not working and does not work necessarily always in alignment with the, with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. You know, there was a blockade, um, you know, that, uh, that uh, shocked everybody. Um, and yet somehow Qatar got through it, came out stronger. You know, they have accelerated a lot of their development plans. Uh, you know, and they're extremely competitive and, and they sit on, um, uh, you know, gas related wealth. So they, 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 and they are using the opportunity now to make the changes that they need to make. I think when you look at it, I would say that uh, these are probably the three who are really driving the process. Um, of the three, the one that I look at the most is actually is Saudi Arabia. One, because it's the biggest. Uh, two, it is very, very wealthy. Um, three, uh, uh, they are influential, you know, uh, because they are the custodians of the holy places. Uh, they do influence and they know that, um, you know. And so I, I think that um, people look to them. But in truth, if you really took a good look at all the countries of the Gulf, right, the, the Gulf, the, these Gulf states, you would actually see that these are the three most obvious who are making the changes and the most visible changes, you know what I mean? Where this is gonna to lead to, I, I really don't know. Will they succeed in their transformation processes? Um, I think it remains to be seen, you know what I mean? I, I, I can't tell you that, oh, in 10 years, this is what's gonna happen. In 20 years, this is gonna happen. That's very linear. And time doesn't work in a linear fashion in, in, in the Middle East. It, it's very circular. So. They start now and then you may not see anything visible for 20 years, but something is happening, change is happening. And right now you can see change. I hope that answers your question. Okay, Eunice, Eunice Teo, um, that's my mother's name. <laughs> my impression is that the Middle East is going through quite a lot of turmoil right now. Which aspects of the Middle East should Singapore be most concerned about? Um, you know, it has been, it's a region that has been in turmoil for a very long time. Uh, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Um, um, but this is exactly what I, what we wanted to try to do in running this series, you know, which is that, that is the impression. If you read the media, you think that that region, it is a region that is perpetually in turmoil. Um, it depends on how you define turmoil. Um, you know, if you go to Israel, it's a remarkably successful state. Um, it, is, it is very stable, even though there is a chasm developing between the sectarian and ultra-Orthodox Israelis. Um, when you go there, everything is turmoil because they argue all the time. They're just completely and utterly argumentative. Uh, you know, uh, the first time I encountered this, I was completely shocked. Uh, but this is who they are. So it depends on what you consider turmoil. If you, if you are talking about states like Iraq, Syria, um, uh, Lebanon, um, they have been struggling for a long time. Uh, there is a lot of sectarian violence. Um, I would say that the interference of uh, external parties have not helped. Um, you know, uh, uh, but 
the problems are the problems of that region. You know, um, there's not a lot that we can do in Singapore. You can offer humanitarian, you can offer assistance through humanitarian aid agencies, um, but it is tough, and um, it is uh, you know though while we while we do look at them with concern. Um, I think the, the, the countries that I think here in Singapore, and you probably see this with many of the Southeast Asian countries, the ones that they're really looking at um, are the Gulf states. Uh, is there turmoil there? Is there instability there? And actually there isn't. The Gulf states are, are, are very, very, very stable. Uh, you know, two years ago, I went to Doha for the Doha Forum. It was my first visit to Qatar, I'm ashamed to say, you know, in the time I was in MFA, I never got a chance to travel to Qatar. So I actually got a chance to go a couple of years ago. And um, Doha surprised me. You know, you could walk around quite freely. There were people walking on the, at the seafront, on the boardwalk, you know, families out, you know. Um, and um, um, it was very peaceful, uh, you know. Uh, I have not been to Saudi Arabia. Has, when I was in the ministry, it was a little bit trickier to do that. But um, uh, uh, I think was it not was it two was I think it was also two years ago. Uh, a couple of my uh, a colleague of mine and our chairman actually traveled to Saudi Arabia, and uh, you know I mean I caught up with our chairman after he, he came back from the Middle East, and he, and he was telling me about Saudi Arabia, and he was my old boss in the ministry. And he was telling me about Saudi Arabia, and I was really very surprised. And he and he said, looked at me and he said, you know, maybe you should make a trip to 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 Saudi Arabia because you know he said uh, things are really changing. I mean, it's still very conservative, but you will probably not find it as difficult. You might find it frustrating, but perhaps not as difficult as as we all believe that it is. So you know, there's a certain stereotypical view, and that is changing. And I think it's only fair that. Uh, you know, we give them their, their due, their due benefit. Um, uh, is there anyone else that we should be concerned about? Uh, I don't really think so. I I think that if you look at Turkey and Iran, um, they are stable. They have their own domestic issues, but uh, they are stable. Um, you know, uh, and uh, you know, we do have bilateral relationships with both these countries. It might be anathema to many of the Gulf states, but we do have relationships with them, you know, and uh, uh, you know, and I think it is uh, it is uh, the right approach to take. May not necessarily agree with the way they do things or the positions that they take, but um, you know, the reality of uh, international relations is that uh, it is often shared interests that bring you together, and when those interests are not shared and your paths diverge, then you disagree. It, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Okay, let me go on to the next question. Chua Zhuguan, are there sectors where the Middle East countries have a natural competitive advantage as they attempt to diversify their economies? My hints, air, sea, hub status, tourism, ability to attract foreign talent and rich. Well, they're very wealthy, especially in the Gulf. But they don't have infinite dollars and they know it. So they need to think about how they want to do this. Now they have social compacts with their own populations. Um, and sometimes these social compacts have to change, but you know, uh, it is also not easy for the populations. I mean, they have young people who want to work. There are no jobs. There are women who 
want the right to drive and it has been begrudgingly given to them. I mean, I know when uh, it was announced that in Saudi Arabia, they were allowing women to drive. Uh, a lot of countries in the West sort of poo-pooed it and said, it's not enough, you can do more. I realized subsequently that it was a big deal in Saudi Arabia. Um, they were even more conservative than I had thought they were. Um, and allowing women to drive was a huge step forward uh, for them. I hope that they continue in that direction. Um, in terms of the hub status, uh, Dubai and Doha are actually in quite a good position in terms of uh, their geography. So they're pretty competitive because if you look at where they're located and uh, the fifth freedom rights that they grant they, or they are given that allow them to fly uh, into Europe, into North America, um, you know, uh, and even down to, down to um, uh, you know, and then to, to Asia, um, that makes them pretty competitive. Uh, I don't know that they naturally, that they have a, a natural advantage. I think their natural advantage is, um, their natural advantage is uh, uh, to, um, uh, um, okay, I've lost my train of thought. Their natural advantage is the location that they are at. Uh, they also have the wealth to build the infrastructures or the airports that they need. That makes them quite competitive. Uh, so in some ways they do have an advantage, but no less an advantage I think than we do here in Singapore. It's how you capitalize on it. I mean, if you look at Singapore, uh, you know, where we are located works perfectly, perfectly for us in not just in terms of maritime, but in terms of the aviation, right? Um, I think if you look at uh, Dubai and Doha, especially Dubai, Dubai is very, very competitive. You know, and that's why they have also managed to attract a lot of uh, businesses. They have also, uh, you know, and uh, they are looking into how they can diversify uh, in terms of uh, building uh, themselves up as a logistics hub. Uh, can you see how they're competing with us? So what they're doing is they're making use of their natural advantages. Yeah. Um, having the luck to have the oil and gas resources, all well and good. But given that there has been a very damning climate change report that says that we are the main cause of climate change and that they are looking at oil and gas as the main uh, problem areas. Uh, you know, I think many of those states that are rich in oil and gas are also having to rethink because what they have now is very valuable, but it's not infinite. And so therefore they have to think about how to best capitalize on what they've got and build on what is available, yeah. Okay, wait, huh? let me just see, what's the next question? You mentioned climate change. Okay, this is from Pritiba. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Pritiba, you mentioned climate change in your speech earlier. What are the potential climate issues facing the region and how important is the region in contributing to the global effort in dealing with climate change? Okay. Um, when I was talking to you all, I talked about the fact that these regions are arid. Um, you know, um, water is an issue for them. Uh, you know, and I think there was recently an interesting article that said that the Middle East is running out of water. So climate change is actually a big problem for them. And I think they recognize this. Uh, you know, we've got an, uh, we've actually got uh, an, uh, a session in this series that will actually look specifically at climate change. 
um, and um, uh, you will see that some of the other issues that they face are extreme heat and uh, desertification. Okay, um, uh, you know these are the issues that face them. Um, can they can they contribute to the global effort in dealing with climate change? Yes, they can. Uh, if you look at what Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates are doing, and they've come up with green plans, I mean, Saudi Arabia has, um, they are all investing in green tech as part of attempts to diversify from hydrocarbons. Uh, I think they recognize that, they, that this is something that they can do. Uh, they get a lot of sunlight. Sorry, I got muted by accident. Uh, okay, I hope you all can hear me now. So let me come back to this. I think you need to look at the Saudi Arabia and the UAE because they are investing in um, green technology uh, and they're investing in a big way. They've come up with green plans. They have, they have a clear vision and they've got clear sort of dates that, like, dead dates that they would like to actually uh, um, uh, achieve uh, some of the goals that they want in terms of being of of being greener, uh, you know, and the green tap. It's part of their effort to diversify from hydrocarbons. Um, they have the money to invest in this technology. It's very expensive at this point. Uh, so you have to be fairly wealthy to be able to invest in it. If it takes off and they are successful, it means that they have a, they have a revenue source it also means that uh, they are contributing to the efforts to combat climate change. Uh, and I think that's an important thing, uh, you know, um, and uh, uh, they uh, will also be able to, uh, you know, offer this in a, in a, in a, in a way that uh, can help many of the other countries in the region. So I think actually that that's, uh, that, that they, they do have a role to play. And they do understand that climate change is having a major impact on, on their part of the world. You know, it, it, it's already very hot and very dry. Climate change is making it even the heat even more extreme. Um, and they are facing the issue of desertification and water has always been a problem for them. You know, um, they, they would be in a lot of trouble if they are running out of water uh, and they're going to have to find a way to deal with this. You know. Okay, Abu Bakr, you've asked this question. How is Jordan relevant to Singapore? No, we have an old relationship with Jordan. Um, King Abdullah is a big fan of Singapore and he has, a very, he has, he has very good ties with um, our prime minister and with many of the ministers past and present. Um, he's made many, many visits to Singapore to promote interfaith dialogue um, and to talk about coexistence and religious tolerance. And I think the Jordanians, better than anyone else, understand uh, this issue. You know, um, you know they, they, they're really, they're right next door to, to Israel. They've had, they have had a tumultuous relationship with the Israelis, um, but they also have uh, their own domestic issues. There is a Jordanian population. They also have a very large Palestinian population. And there are the tensions and the divisions. Um, and 
you know, that are, are ethnic, also religious. And uh, so I think um, on that front, I think the Jordanians are, are very relevant as one, we have a good relationship with them. Two, what they are talking about is a, is a topic that um, is important to us in Singapore. I mean, we are multi-ethnic, multi-religious, and you know, some sort of uh, small cracks are starting to show. COVID has not helped. Um, and, uh, you know, more than ever, the need to, to find that common space where various races and religions can coexist peacefully with one another is important. We've been very, very lucky in Singapore, uh, but, you know, we can't take it for granted. So I think in that sense, the Jordan is, is relevant to us. Um, and we, you know, we continue to do quite a lot with them. You know, they, they were also one of the first countries that uh, we, we brought, we opened our Singapore cooperation program to. I think we did, we provided a training program to them jointly with the Japanese. It was quite a successful program. Uh, and uh, I think the Jordanians themselves found it pretty helpful. So, you know, uh, so that's my response that yes, they, 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 is, they are important to us. Let's see if there's any other questions. Okay, wait. No? Alfin Fabrian Basundoro, you have a question. As Saudi Arabia and Iran continue to have a fractious relationship, how can Singapore maintain a good relationship with both countries? With great difficulty. Um, uh, uh, I think we see value in both the relationships. I, you know, at the beginning of my speech, I talked about how uh, one of the three countries that we paid attention to was Saudi Arabia, and it was because of Jeddah and the Hajj, because of our uh, Muslim population who would make the annual pilgrimage, etc. But you know, that relationship has, has moved beyond that. Um, you know, um, we do have a, we have a post uh, in, in Riyadh, we have an ambassador there. Uh, sending an ambassador and setting up an embassy is a big deal in terms of um, uh, international relations and how you view a particular country. Um, we don't have the same with Iran. Uh, and uh, mainly because there are many more Singaporeans who go to Saudi Arabia. So, you know, we also have to be a little bit practical. The Iranians are not too happy about this. They would love, they would like for us to set up an embassy in Tehran. I remember that there was always this long discussion about it. For now, we have a non-resident ambassador to Iran. Um, you know, uh, we listen to both sides. Both sides are not very happy that we have a relationship with the other country. Uh, and we have always taken a very practical approach, which is that um, uh, as, a, you know, as, a, as a sovereign state, we, we have the right to uh, have relationships with whom we choose to have relationships with. And we chose to have relationships with both Iran and Saudi Arabia because with both, we see opportunities for cooperating. Um, but there are difficulties, you know? I mean, with Iran, it's easier said than done. There are so many sanctions imposed on them that at this point, the relationship has not moved forward, even though we, you know, we, we, we uh, recognize that, you know, they do have a talented uh, population and they do have, they do have something to offer. So, um, the short answer to your question is that maintaining the balance between the two is not easy. 
uh, small countries inevitably come under some kind of pressure, but I don't think it's just the small countries. Any countries who get caught in that, uh, uh, you know, get face some difficulties. And, and I don't think that it's just confined to Saudi Arabia and Iran in the Middle East. Okay, June, could and should Singapore be more involved in peace and resolution of conflicts in the Middle East? Why? What could we offer? Um, you know, some of these, um, some of these um, conflicts, uh, there may be no easy answer to them. You know, uh, if you if you talk about you know uh, you know uh, because if if the main players um, are not willing to come to the table and have a discussion, it's difficult enough for the countries within that region to try to help them resolve their problems, let alone an outside country like Singapore. You know? um, and I know it sounds very uh, pragmatic and almost callous in, in the answer that I have given you, but I mean, you know, sometimes you have to be a bit practical about this. And so my question, my answer to that is that what would we have to offer them, you know, uh, that could not be better offered by countries in their own part of the world who are part of that region and probably have had to live with these conflicts on their doorstep for the longest time. Right, let's go to the next question. Okay, Tan Chia Hao, you have asked this question. Mr. Kausikan wrote in a recent column that the US withdrawal from Afghanistan is a strategically correct move, although the humanitarian toll is sad. What are your thoughts? Um, I have the same view. <laughs> I, I feel that, I think it was done in a very messy way. Um, I think that they have made some mistakes, but from a strategic perspective, I think um, it was the correct move because um, uh, the Americans finally and perhaps belatedly learned what the British learned, the Russians have, and the Russians learned that Afghanistan is, is, is an almost impossible place uh, to be in. Uh, you know, um, the humanitarian toll is, is pretty horrendous. You know, uh, the Biden administration, you know, essentially made a decision. They, they, the collateral damage are the Afghan people themselves because their priority is to save the American people and to withdraw their troops because um, Americans domestically are just tired of being involved in wars that are not of their making. Um, uh, you know, and if you were to look at Afghanistan, I mean, my question is, what is the strategic imperative for the Americans to be there? Um, and I'm not sure that I see one. So I think, therefore, the decision now, uh, and I think uh, the chairman described it as cutting the Gordian knot, which is, you know, a rather dramatic uh, action, um, which is what they have done. I think there may not be no right way. There would have been no right way for the American, for the US to withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, uh, and it's, um, uh, you know, um, and so we are faced with this uh, terrible situation that we now have, you know. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with the way the Americans did it, 
but I can understand why the I can understand the strategic imperative for doing it. And I think on that basis, it probably was the correct move for them. Okay, Keith. Um, can social change occur in the Middle East given its highly religious and conservative culture? Um, I think it is going to be a faltering effort. Um, and it's going to be really very difficult. What you have to see is that in diversifying their economy away from a dependence on oil and gas, the Gulf states are essentially trying to diversify away from what is essentially a rentier economy. Um, and with that, a social compact that they have worked out with their people, uh, you know, uh, where they have subsidized uh, many of the most basic goods and, and services. Um, in order to ensure compliance. Um, when you diversify and you move away from a rentier economy, you therefore have to take away subsidies. Now, a couple of years ago, the Saudis tried to take away the petrol subsidies and there was a huge hue and cry from the Saudi population about it. And they immediately, they almost immediately had to reinstate it. Uh, and that just tells you how difficult it's going to be, you know, um, on top of which, you know, you've you you you've correctly pointed out it is a very very conservative society. You know, uh, and religion plays a big part in that. Um, you know, so my 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 view is that they are going to have to loosen up um, some of these conservative sort of strictures uh, in order to. Uh, ameliorate the pain of taking away subsidies uh, um, and so uh, getting a buy-in from their population. Um, are they going to succeed at it? I don't know. It's going to be very difficult. I think it will be in fits and starts. It will falter. Um, it's basically going to be very, very hard. It, it really is a very conservative society. Okay. Neha has asked, will close ties with Israel prevent Singapore from being able to take on a truly neutral stance on the issue? You know, um, Singapore has actually supported almost every UN resolution in favor of the Palestinians. I don't know how many people know this. Um, the Israelis have always been upset with us. Uh, you know, um, I mean, I, I was a delegate when I was in the foreign ministry, I was a delegate at the United Nations. Uh, upset would be a very mild term to say, you know, the Israelis were, were rather upset with us. I mean, we have a good relationship with them. We've always had a good relationship and we have, we have never stopped appreciating what they have done for, for us. But on the issue of the Palestinians, we have always, always supported every UN resolution. And we did condemn uh, Donald Trump's decision, the Trump administration's decision uh, to, to uh, move its embassy to Jerusalem. We condemned it at the United Nations because um, you know, we, we didn't feel that this was, this was, a, this was a good move. You know? uh, so um, no one is truly neutral is my answer to you. Uh, but 
on the issue of uh, Palestinians, I would say you need to take a look at what we've done at the United Nations, because for all the for all that we have with the Israelis, and it is a very good relationship. This is the one issue we have not agreed with them on, uh, and you know, um, and it's not just it is not just the Israelis that have been upset with us at the UN. The Americans usually are pretty upset with us as well, uh, but you know, we had to take a stand. Okay. Are there any more questions? Okay, let me let me look at this question. I do not okay. Oh wait. Okay, Zaid Ahmed, you've asked, can Singapore and Qatar work more closely together given the similarity three similarities between both, such as being small states surrounded by big countries? Um We probably could, uh, and I think um, there's quite a lot of interest uh, on the part of Qatar in Singapore. Um, you know, uh, 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 and I think the leadership recognizes that. Uh, I mean, they did take many. They took. They did learn many lessons from us. I think. Uh, you know, when the blockade occurred, um, there was a visit here by your by the Qatari foreign minister and the prime minister. Um, he came to deliver our SR Naben lecture that particular year, and I think it was 2019. Um, uh, we had a smaller meeting with him uh, after he delivered his, uh, his statement. Uh, I have to say he was very impressive. Um, he was very thoughtful. Um, he asked the questions that he knew we could we could give him the answers to because we were also a small state. Uh, we are surrounded by larger states. Uh, you know, uh, the Singaporeans in the audience will know that we have had a fraught relationship since independence, both with Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, you know, we have been variously described as red dot, postage stamp. You know. Um, and so I think the Qataris recognize this, um, and uh, you know, there's much uh, that they've asked us many questions. We could probably continue to work closely together. On our part, there's much that we can also learn from them. I'm very impressed by how the Qataris have actually uh, been able to uh, uh, stabilize their food security. Um, you know, they moved very quickly. Uh, they found the resources that they uh, they found the resources that they they needed, um, and they uh, uh, they were nimble. They were resourceful, uh, and they were very clever in the way that they did things. Uh, I personally, I was very impressed by that. You know, uh, you know, um, but it shouldn't have surprised me. You know, because when I was in Doha, you know, you listen to a lot of their their younger leaders talk. These guys are, uh, they speak English fluently. They take questions. They don't take pre-prepared questions. They take questions from the floor um, and they answer immediately. And, and they give very thoughtful answers, thoughtful and articulate answers. So um, can we do more with them? I, I think we can. Uh, of course, I have a vested interest. I mean, I'd like to actually go and visit Doha because they have some world-class museums that I've not had a chance to see all of them and I'd like to go back and see them again. So. Who knows, you know, but yes, there are opportunities for us to work more closely together. Thank you for that question. Okay. Um, 
Thomas Tan, you've asked two questions. Let me answer the first question. What's the likelihood of other ASEAN countries giving diplomatic recognition to Israel? I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Because if you, I mean, you know, Malaysia and Indonesia both have some level of unofficial cooperation with Israel. Uh, but they also have domestic politics that they have to deal with. And I think that's going to get in the way. I don't think the diplomatic recognition will come anytime soon, but I'm quite sure that behind the scenes, there's a lot of action. The second question, will engagement with the different Middle East stakeholders, the governments, the business elites, the academia, the defense community make more sense if it is approached from an ASEAN whole or one-to-one -one by each country? This is an ASEAN existential question that we have asked for decades and, uh, you know. Um, I think there will be some issues where it probably makes more sense if we were to approach, we were to, we were to work uh, as, a, as a grouping, as ASEAN. Convincing the other ASEAN members is another, is another story, whether or not they will agree to that. But there are other issues where I think working on a bilateral basis is probably much more effective because um, um, you know, the Southeast Asian countries are really quite different from one another. Um, and the links will be really quite different, uh, you know, um, and, and the approaches. Um, and I think, I suspect that on the economics and finance side of the house, none of these countries are going to want to band together collectively. What they'd rather do is try to get what they can, the best deals that they can get bilaterally. So I think it really depends on the issue. Uh, and where it would be more effective to work as ASEAN collectively and where it might actually work better if we were to do it on a bilateral basis. Okay. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name correctly. That, okay, this is probably gonna be the last question because we've only got a few minutes. Daphnis Tan, did I pronounce your name correctly? If I haven't, I apologize. Um, it, it is a unique name and uh, so I apologize ahead of time. What is one key lesson learned from Qatar's resolve towards their blockade that is relevant to Singapore? That having strong defense capability makes all the difference. This was the one thing that the Qatar FM said. They were completely blindsided when the blockade occurred um, and they realized that they needed an effective armed forces and they and they didn't but they didn't develop this until after the blockade you know other things were food security diversified links and above all is a sense of national identity uh you know um I think these are the things that when we looked at the Qatar blockade, we came back and we took a look at what we were doing as a country. We've always talked about a national identity, uh, you know, uh, and I think that has been important more than anything else, regardless of your race or your religion or the language you speak. 
you must have an overarching national identity. And I think we all have that as Singaporeans. The second thing that we learned looking at the Qatar blockade was that the decision in 1965-66 to, to build up our armed forces uh, and the help that we got from the Israelis was the correct strategy to have taken. Because, uh, you know, I can tell you that as a former diplomat, the fact that we had very strong military capability and Jane's defense always raves about Singapore's integrated forces. Um, has always helped us be taken seriously. Quite apart from the fact that we're economically successful, we also have a, quite an effective military. And I hope it stays that way because that has helped. Of course, you'll always get sniping from different ASEAN countries who shall rename, be, remain nameless, but you know who they are, uh, who snipe at us about why we spend so much money on our defense, uh, that this is a peaceful region and we have peaceful neighbors and therefore we are wasting our money in building up this defense capability. Uh, well, to each his own, right? So those are a couple of the things that we learned. Uh, you know, I think the food security was the thing that uh, I think got everybody's attention because the Qataris were very, very quick to, to actually secure and diversify. And we learned from that, you know, uh, during the pandemic, especially last year when the global supply chain started getting cut off, there was a lot of discussion about this, you know, I mean, you could see the ministers talk, constantly talking about this. And I think behind the scenes, they continue to talk about this, about securing the supply chains, stabilizing them, diversifying them so that you always have the supply coming in. If you are a country that has no natural resources, then this is something that you really need to think about. So if I look at Qatar, I'd say these were some of the key lessons. Um, let, me, let me conclude in saying something that Lee Kuan Yew once said. He has said many, many things. Some, you know, people very, really disagree with. Even, even I have disagreed with some things. But the one thing he always said from the start, he's very consistent about this. Defense is the policy for which everything else must bend at the knee. Um, I think that is a very true statement. Uh, you, no one is going to protect you. No one is going to fight for your interests. You need to protect yourself. You need to build your own defenses. You need to protect your own interests. Um, and then it comes down to your national identity. Do you feel a sense of identity and connection to the country in which you live that you were born and raised in? And I think uh, that, that's, the, that's the very critical thing. Okay. Um, I don't think we've got any more questions. So. Um, uh, I'm going to end here. Um, I want to thank you all for your time. Um, I also want to thank you all for staying the course because not too many people dropped off this discussion uh, and, and session. And I, I, I really do appreciate that. Um, speaking in public is a terribly difficult thing for me. So I appreciate all of you. I thank you very much. Please join us next week. Uh, September is going to be an interesting month. Uh, many of the questions you have asked, you should ask again, ask these questions of, uh, of our speakers. Many of them are our own researchers. They study these issues quite carefully um, and they will give you a much more in-depth uh, approach. I didn't want to say too much today because I really would like to give them the platform uh, in the coming weeks. So I want to thank you all for your time.
uh, is much appreciated. I also want to thank all of you for your continuing support of the Middle East Institute. Without you, we would not have the profile that we have. Uh, without you, we would not be able to run the events that we run. And, uh, you know, and I appreciate the, the questions that have come in today. So thank you all very much for your time. Uh, and uh, many thanks to the uh, entire uh, team as well, uh, who have been working tirelessly back end. Um, I've made some mistakes this evening, so I apologize in advance to everyone, but I thank you all and we'll see you next week. All right, take care. Thank you all very much. Bye.